Dr. Robert Vinoy, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 10. We were discussing Genesis 2, and we've come down to number 4, quote, creation of woman, end quote. You've noticed on your outline sheet there are several subpoints, the first of which is, quote, the need is demonstrated, end quote. We find this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and following, quote, And the Lord God says that it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help fit for him, end quote. Then the statement that the King James translates, quote, I will make him a help fit for him, end quote. The word translated there, quote, fit for him, end quote, suggests that they corresponded through likeness. I won't give you the Hebrew term, but if you looked at the Hebrew word in the German lexicon, you will find that definition there is, quote, a help equal and adequate to himself, end quote. So the Lord says that it is not good for man to be alone. He should have a help who corresponds to himself, who is equal and adequate to himself. We may think that the term, quote, help, end quote, implies inferiority. We go back to chapter 1. You find both man and woman were created in the image of God, and they stand as equal before God, both created in his image. But the woman is to be a help for man, not his slave. She is the one who complements the man, who corresponds to the man. But before God gave the woman to Adam, Adam is told that he is to name all the creatures, all the animals. So you read in verse 19 that, quote, The Lord brought all these beasts of the field and fowls of the air to see what he would call them, end quote. In verse 20, it says that Adam gave names to the cattle and beasts of the field, but the last phrase of verse 20, quote, There was not found a help equal and adequate to himself that corresponded to himself, end quote. I think that the point of this material is to emphasize and to bring out that in all these living creatures, there were no creatures that corresponded to Adam, that was like Adam. There was a difference between the creatures and Adam, and he became aware of that. When it says that Adam was to name all the creatures, it means more than just giving them a label. He probably characterized them in some way, by their name, which would involve understanding something about the differences between the animals, and in the process, he becomes acutely conscious of the difference between himself and the animals, and his need for fellowship with a partner who has a likeness to himself. After God creates woman, verses 21 and 22, Adam says, quote, Now at last, end quote, this is not in the King James, Quote, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, end quote. Now at last, now after having surveyed all these other creatures, and seeing that there was not one that corresponded to himself, now at last, the woman does. Woman is not a product of evolutionary development. Now you read in verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh. So the Lord brings this deep sleep 
like an anesthesia, you might say, on Adam. While he sleeps, as the King James translates it, God took one of his ribs and made a woman in verse 22. The Hebrew word for, quote, rib, end quote, which is used here, so for those of you who have had Hebrew, it is salab in the singular, but here it is in the plural form, here because you know it says, quote, he took one of his ribs, end quote. My interest is that this word is difficult to translate in this context. The interesting thing is, in its other occurrences, it generally has the meaning of, quote, side, end quote. Here is the only place where it is translated, quote, rib, end quote, in the entirety of the Old Testament. If you look up the usage of the term, you will find a wide variety of usages, but always with the idea of side. Not always, but usually, the usage of aside in Exodus chapter 25, verse 12, quote, Thou shalt cast four rings of gold and put them in the corners, and two rings shall be on one, quote, side, end quote, of it, and two rings shall be on the other, quote, side, end quote, of it, end quote, referring to the Ark of the Covenant. So, one side of the ark and the other side of the ark. And that's this term. Verse 14 is the same. By the sides of the ark in Exodus chapter 27, verse 7. In Exodus chapter 27, verse 7, quote, The staves shall be put into the ring. The staves shall be put upon the two sides of the altar. End quote. Exodus 26, verse 20 and the second side of the tabernacle, and the north side there should be twenty boards. Side of the tabernacle. Quote, As David and his men went by his way, Shimei went by his way by the hillside. The side of the hill. Second Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Now the problem is, in the context of Genesis 2.21, you have a plural form. It's preceded by, quote, one of, end quote, in Hebrew. As he slept, he took, quote, one of, end quote, and probably because of the use of this in the first place, 1 Kings 16, the idea of rib, has been chosen as an appropriate translation. 1 Kings 6.15's usage of the term where you read, of Solomon building the temple, he built the walls of the house inside with boards of cedar. Now, boards is a plural form again, boards of cedar. It's an unusual use of it, but in the context, it indicates boards. Both the floors and the walls and the ceiling he covered inside with wood and the inside with the planks of fir. Planks is in the plural form. So, with that kind of use in 1 Kings chapter 6, the combination of use of one of prior to the term here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. Many have come to the conclusion that the best translation for it in the context is, quote, rib, end quote. Even though this is not a term elsewhere used as a rib, how does the NIV translate it? I have to check that. Now, about the NRSV, probably, quote, ribs, end quote, too. 
I think to translate it as ribs is more explicit than the usage of the Hebrew term would suggest. But I cannot suggest a better translation. You could say, quote, took from the side, end quote, and leave what he took from the side unexpressed as a possibility. But that doesn't do justice to the plural form. So you see, that's where you are with this problem of translation. You read some of the literature this passage is often made fun of. Quote, the woman took rib from man, end quote. Woman has one less rib than man. The whole thing is sort of ridiculed. There is a certain obscurity on exactly what this term means in this context. Rib is a reasonable translation, but perhaps a bit more explicit than you get from the usage elsewhere. In any case, another thing that reinforces the idea of rib is Adam's statement in verse 23, where he sees woman, he said, quote, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. End quote. So bone was taken. But the question is whether that is intended to be pushed to that extent in the literal sense, or whether it is more figurative in reference to the close relationship. In Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, you read, quote, Then came all the tribes of Israel to Hebron to speak to David, and they spoke, saying, We are bone of your flesh, end quote. All Israel was saying to David, We are bone of your flesh. Obviously, the expression there is the closeness that he is one of them. Perhaps you would say the same thing in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, when Adam's expression, quote, Here is the one who corresponds to me, who has been built from that which is taken away from me. End quote. Yes, that was Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Whether it was actually a rib that was taken, I think that is the point. Clearly, there is something that it was taken from man. His flesh was opened, put in this deep sleep, and from what was taken, woman was made. That may have been a rib. It may have been more than a rib. It's taken from the side of a man, obviously. The point is that when Adam awakes and sees woman, he recognizes something of himself. Then an expression is given in a Hebrew poetic form. If you look at the NIV, you can see that the way that the lines are set up, it's not prose, but poetry. He says, quote, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Quote. Among animals, he had not found such a partner, but he finds a helpmate that corresponds to himself. That is, someone like himself. God had given to him a partner, and he recognizes the unity between himself and the woman. See the meaning of the woman being created out of man? I think it's clear that there is significance here, not only in respect to the origin of the woman coming from man as a special creative act of God, but there is also significance to the institution of marriage. I think that we find significance in verse 24, because immediately you read the statement, quote, 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In your bibliography I have referred to this Francis Schaeffer, page 45. Schaeffer says, quote, Certainly the fact of woman's creation out of man has a very definite philosophical significance because it means that man is really a unique man and did not come just out of nowhere, nor has he sprung up from numerous starts. There was a beginning, and a very real beginning, in the unity of one man, one individual, differentiated from all that preceded him, then differentiated in terms of male and female. It is this picture of man that gives strength to the Christian concept of the unity of mankind. The world is trying to find a basis to prove that all men are one, but the Christian does not have this problem, for we understand why all mankind is united. Furthermore, we can begin to understand something about marriage, because God himself ties the marriage bond into the reality of unity of mankind. Hence, we can understand something about the particularity of the union of the male and the female, constituting one whole. They become one flesh. Man, with the capital M, equals male and female, and the one man, one female union reunites that unity. Now, most interpreters agree that that statement in verse 24 is the words of the writer, not a continuation of the words of Adam. So in verse 23, Adam says, quote, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. End quote. Now you get not a continuation, but a comment by the narrator. That doesn't make it not the word of God. In fact, that verse is quoted by Christ in Matthew 5. The question is, in respect of verse 24, is this to be taken as an explanation or a command? Quote, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. End quote. Is that an explanation, or something that happens all the time? Or is it an injunction, a command, of something that man must do that? There are those who have taken it as a command. The Hebrew syntax would allow it to be understood either way. It is an imperfect verbal form. Quote, man shall leave his father and his mother. End quote. An imperfect tense in Hebrew can be an injunction to express a command. Or it can be taken as a frequentative or habitual, something that always happens. Among those who took it in the first sense as a command was John Calvin. He says that, quote, quote, shall, end quote, should not be taken as a future, but in the sense of must, end quote. Therefore, a man must leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. And his comment is in the basis of a creative process because of the way in which woman was formed. Man must do this. Grammatically, it is possible to understand it this way, but it is also possible to take it as a fact, an explanation of a fact. 
and I think this is preferable. In other words, in verse 24, an explanation of what it is for a man to leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife. Why does man do that? Why does that happen with regularity? Why is that the normal thing, you might say? The reason why is found in the creation. God created man and woman in unity, and man and woman are created to seek that unity and fellowship with one another as the two become one flesh. Now I think that the implication of all that is that monogamous marriage is rooted in creation. That the second position spoke of the unity of mankind generally, but you also have the idea here that monogamous marriage is rooted in creation. You have that explanation for that inner unity between the man and his wife. Why is that? It's because they were originally one, and now in the marriage relationship that unity is restored. Man knows then, by divine revelation, in this Genesis 2 account, that woman was taken from his own body, and that in the marriage relationship you have something of a restoration of that original unity. You should not restrict that expression, quote, become one flesh, end quote, to the physical sexual union. Certainly it involves that, and includes that, and the unity between man and woman finds expression in that. There's a comment in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, which says, quote, What, know you not, that he who has joined to a harlot is one body? End quote. Certainly that is speaking there of a physical union. But I think there is much more than that involved. In that statement, quote, Man shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. End quote. The unity, it seems to me, involves spiritual, emotional, and psychological union as well as the physical union. It is a very complex thing. They are all interrelated. Then again, I think that underlies and, and it underscores the fact that for that kind of unity, monogamy is essential. But I think the point of what is being addressed there is so significant. In the marriage bond, two people are no longer two. In other words, they become interdependent. They are drawn into a unity that involves not only a physical relationship, but a spiritual, psychological, and emotional union of two people. Okay, let's go on to five. Quote, what about evolution? End quote. Again, there are three sub-points. The first is the meaning of the term. When we talk about evolution, we have to realize that the term is often used in different ways. Most frequently, it is used for the theory that every living thing has come from natural causes and has gone from simple to the complex by natural selection. That's the macroevolutionary theory. It is an amoeba develops to man kind of theory. Originally, in some very ancient past, things came together under such conditions. The principle was created that life began to differentiate itself, and through the process of time and natural selection, eventually all the variety of living things that we now know 
has come through that process. That is the common meaning and use of the term, and I think that we can say without any qualifications that there is no way that the idea can be harmonized with the creation count of Genesis 1-3. through 3. Now, the interesting thing is that check in the last 10 to 15 years, very serious questions about the evolutionary theory have been raised by competent scientists. Even, I'm not thinking here about the creation scientists who have raised these questions about the evolutionary theory, but by the competent scientists who are not committed to the Christian faith of origin. Even by such people, serious questions are being raised about the evolutionary theory. One illustration of that is listed in your bibliography, top of page 9, the third entry, Sir Fred Hoyle. The title is Evolution from Space. I don't know if any of you have heard of that book when it was released in 1981. I have a review here of it that gives somewhat of an idea of the content of that book, and I will read you some parts of the book. The review says, quote, an eminent British scientist has molded a new assault from the Darwinian evolutionary theories, saying that the possibility of it being true is utterly minuscule as to be absurd, quote. Of course, the author of it is Sir Fred Hoyle, internationally recognized astronomer, mathematician. He is also associated with the Royal Astronomical Society, started leading universities in England and the United States as well. The review goes on to say, quote, he directly challenges both the Darwinian concept of gradual evolution and different life forms from common origins, and also that the first living cells developed by random process of some primordial ooze. The chances of that happening is not that far from zero, end quote. Hoyle is 67 years old with numerous honors in his field. He's not a Christian, and his study is not based on Scripture. Rather, it's based on his analysis of the situation. He says, quote, Biomolecules are now known to be enormously complex, that quite explicit instructions were necessary for their assembly, and that other means of natural selection were required for life's development. The requisite information came from an intelligence, end quote. Now, he is not willing to call the intelligence God, but he says that it has to have come from an intelligence. Quote, the beckoning specter, he calls it. The new evidence point clearly and decisively to a cosmic origin. His idea is that life didn't come from this planet, but in from space somewhere. But what he is saying is you cannot explain the complexity of many different life forms on the basis of this evolutionary theory. He thinks it is nonsense. In making the case, these two authors, Ray Fine, cite microbiology, mathematics, computer technology, and the fossil record against the Darwin theory. The theory is undercut by a new knowledge. They say that paleontologists for years have been recognizing the slow evolutionary connection required by the theory that had not happened, but it has not made much impression on general opinion. Chances of random chemical shufflings in some primordial soups producing the basic complex enzymes of life 
are one to the one to the to the fortieth power, or one followed by forty zeros, the two scientists calculate. They say that the chances are so outrageously small that it would be incredible even if the whole universe consisted of an organic soup. This situation is well known to geneticists, and yet nobody seems to blow the whistle. If Darwinism was not sociably desirable, it would, of course, be otherwise. So he is saying that the reason for the persistence to the theory is that it is not a scientific basis being a convincing theory. It is something that is desirable socially. Quote, they note their own revolt, end quote. I should read the previous sentence, quote, Once a whole society begins to commit to a particular set of concepts, educational continuity makes it exceedingly hard to change the pattern, end quote. The author says, quote, You either have to believe the concepts or you will be branded a heretic, end quote. They note their own revolt has not been greeted with a furious attack as they had expected, but with a wall of silence in scientific journals, which tends to accept any hypothesis in order to uphold Darwinism. Every competent space mathematician would assure you that such a Darwinian idea had no chance of working, and what they are talking about there is mutations being that which explains the progression of higher life forms. Every computer expert will surely inform you throwing random mistakes into a computer is no way to improve it. Darwinism is inadequate to explain evolutionary changes, but that have occurred as the author says. Now I read from the length of that review an illustration of one example of the kinds of questions that are being raised recently about evolutionary theory. Yet, as they say, in the scientific community at large, the theory is not really being dispensed with. It's very hard to move accumulative investment of time and energy, theory and writing, commitment, and all the rest of it in supporting the evolutionary theory. This review, I don't have a date on this review, let me make a connection with Hoyle's book and some of these ideas generally written to Carl Henry's discussion in, quote, God, Revelation, and Authority. It is a second entry over there in page 9. There is a long section where he discusses the present situation with respect to evolutionary theory. It's a chapter well worth reading, the whole chapter here. But on page 178, he discusses Hoyle's book, and he says that Hoyle projects the possibility, discussed also by other people, that life arrived on Earth from outer space. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy's Old Testament History, Lecture Number 10.